Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. Amen. You can take your seats. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles and, and you want to follow along, we're going to Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. If you have ever had a public speaking class, one of the very first things you will have learned in that class is that you must create a well-crafted, attention-getting first sentence. Now, I've been working on mine for months. Well, weeks. Just so I can get your attention. It's hot. I've got to get your attention right away. So here it is. You ready? How many of you are ready? Are you ready? If you're not ready, I'm not doing it. I'm going to walk out the door and I'm going to go home. You've got to be ready because this, this will do it for you. Here it is. Hey, everybody, I have an idea. Let's talk about the final moments before your death. <laughs> Some of you think that's funny. Others of you are scowling at me. I understand. I understand. Uh, as Americans, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about death, much less talking about it unless we have to. And uh, we're kind of ambivalent about it, and sometimes even Christians are. Uh, there's, there's generally two ways that people think about death. One of them is from uh, the filmmaker Woody Allen. I don't know if you know his name or not, but if you do, anyway. Uh, he said, you know, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Yeah, a lot of us do. R.C. Sproul, on the other hand, a theologian, um, had a different take, and he said, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. And I think we understand that too. Now, it may seem odd to you that this subject would come up this way, but um, pastors in generations past have actually trained and, and instructed their congregations on how to die well. They instructed them on how to die well by living well for the glory of God. And our death can be an opportunity to glorify God. And if you don't think so, just listen to this passage. This is Jesus talking with Peter um, uh, just, uh, just before uh, his ascension, that is Jesus' ascension. He said to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. You walked wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And John says this, he said, to show him by what kind of death he would glorify God. There it is. So let's ask ourselves that question this morning. What will our death say about us? Will it say, will it say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or might it say something else? Well, let's pray as we look into this text. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you put this story for us uh, and before us this morning. We know then that you want us to learn something from your word. And so we ask you that we might hear what your word has to say this morning and, uh, in, and learn from it. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, 
Amen. Now, when we come to the story of Stephen's death, uh, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the stoning part is, is really very short. But you, when you look at the whole chapter, uh, you know, there seem to be a number of ways of coming at it. At least that's what I thought. We could look at it from the standpoint of what it means to suffer for the gospel of Christ. Or we could look at it from the standpoint of how the Holy Spirit would uh, give us courage well, in a hostile situation. But when I looked at it another way, I thought there's something peculiar about why Luke put this story in here. It takes up an awful lot of space. You know, when you compare uh, Stephen's death and his martyrdom to all of the other persecution of the church in the book of Acts, this one is like a huge footprint. And in fact, it is the second longest story of, of a Christian's death in the Bible. Only Jesus is longer. And so I think Luke is doing something here. It was a little bit puzzling to me until I read uh, a sermon by um, Charles Spurgeon. And I think, that, I think he got it right when he said that God, the Holy Spirit, who wrote the Scripture, is not so concerned that we focus on how Christians die, but rather how they live, because to live well will mean dying well. And I thought, you know what? That makes sense to me. And so that's how I want us to focus on this. Stephen's death was a very violent one. He didn't have any family or friends around. He only had enemies at the time. And so, um, in order to, uh, here we go, in order to uh, walk us through this particular uh, passage, um, it, it breaks down neatly into three Three, uh, in three ways. First of all, the cause of the storm. Second of all, the calm before the storm, and then the storm. And then what we'll do is we walk through that. We'll get to the end, and we'll look at four different ways of applying Stephen's story to our own lives to think, uh, help us think about how to prepare for our own death. So let's first of all look at verse 54. That is the cause of the storm. And Luke writes this, now, when they heard these things, which was everything that Stephen had said in the previous part of the chapter, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Some translations may say they gnashed their teeth at him. Now, Stephen's ministry provoked the anger of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He faced fierce opposition by his preaching and also by the many uh, miracles that he performed. But I think what caught him, got him into trouble was the disputations. There were people, men, coming out of the synagogue, and they were trying to argue with him that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was a criminal. He died. He's not the one that God promised. But it says, Luke says, that he was so persuasive, Stephen was so persuasive, and came with the power of the Spirit. They couldn't argue against him, and it just frustrated them to no end. So rather than admit defeat, they decided they were going to get some witnesses to say things that Stephen never said. They're going to testify against Stephen and, and say that he's, he said the temple is no longer necessary. And um, that's blasphemy. To tear down this temple, that'd be blasphemy. And the sentence for that is death. Now, Stephen got a chance to defend himself, and he did that by giving a very long speech about the history of Israel and her leaders. And his point was very simple. The obstinacy of the nation, and especially her leaders, is what has displeased God. The leaders were proud of their election, and they abused that privilege. And, they, they, and, and so Stephen argued, God is sovereign. 
He is free to do what he would like in saving anyone he likes, anywhere he likes to save them, and in any fashion that he would like to save them. And not only that, but Jesus called the church then to bring the gospel to the nations because God planned to save Gentiles too. This just absolutely enraged this council. And the coup de grace was when Stephen turned the tables on them and called them blasphemers, and they, they could no longer uh, control themselves. And then the storm uh, is a little bit calm for Stephen, but not for the guys. That's when all hell broke, loud, uh, broke out against him. And I, and I say that uh, literally because this phrase, gnashing teeth, is used only seven other times, and they're all in the Gospels. They're used by Jesus to describe the torments of hell, which are weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so then he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and, this is important, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This phrase, this title, is the one that Jesus took for himself. And it comes from Daniel 7. And here's what Daniel saw. He saw a vision of the Son of Man, and this is what he recorded. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This was a significant title, and Stephen knew what he was doing when he used it, and the Sanhedrin knew what it meant, because what it meant was that Jesus is the Son of Man who now has all power, all authority in his hands to do as he pleases with the expanse of the gospel, and he has opened up the doors so that people might come flooding into the kingdom because of him. And this is what caused these men to be so outraged. You see, Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, and by his ascension, has changed the rules of what it means to come into God's presence. Jesus broke down all of the barriers there were rituals that you had to perform, and only certain people could come nearer and nearer to God until there was only one person who could come into God's presence one time a year. But Jesus shattered all of that. And basically what he says, come to me, all you that hunger and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You don't need to go to the temple anymore. There are no more rituals to perform. You don't have to wash your hands and slaughter animals. You just come to Jesus, and he, he, he uh, forgives you. This is the, one of the greatest messages of the gospel that teaches us this is really good news for bad people. No more regulations, substitutionary death on our part, and the gospel tells us and teaches us that no moral improvements on our part will ever get us nearer to God than what Jesus has done for us. In fact, if we try, if we try to make ourselves somehow morally acceptable to God, it will never pass. God will say, no, I gave you what you needed. My son, take him. So what does Jesus require then? 
He requires the simplest of things. He requires us to bring our sins to him. All of them? All of them. Even the ones you don't know about yet. You bring all of your sins to him with a repentant heart and a willing reception of what he has already done and nothing of what you can do. And he cleanses you of your sin. He must forgive sin because we cannot. So the storm breaks on Stephen. Verse 57, when they, when they heard this, what Stephen said about the Son of Man, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The one thing about anger is if you don't get a cap on it, it will progressively corrupt you and get worse and fall into rage. And this rage here falls into murder. And, and it's just, you know, get the picture. I, I don't know if Luke meant this as kind of a, a funny sidelight. It sort of struck me as funny. You have really mature leaders. He's, you know, just imagine, these are really mature leaders, 50, 60, 70 years old, wise, lots of gray hair, you know, very dignified, and they're standing there and they're going, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. What is this, a playground? That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. Stephen's death was brutal. His death by stoning is brutal. I'm sure you've seen the pictures or something like them where Stephen is kneeling down and, you know, he's looking up to heaven and, and there's these guys in, in their robes and they have what, what look like the size of baseballs in their hands that they're going to throw. Well, it wasn't really like that. I don't know exactly what happened, but I did read a report about stoning in the first century, what it was like. Here's what it was like. The, the, two, the witnesses that came against Stephen, there would have to be two of them that were involved in the process. And these two witnesses would march Stephen to about 15 feet from the place where he would be executed. So that's probably like the front row. And when they got to that place, they'd stop. And one of the witnesses would turn to Stephen and say, Now, Stephen... Confess your sins, and you will maintain your share in the messianic age. Meaning this. Stephen, if you fess up, even though you're going to be stoned, it's going to happen, you still get into heaven. Now, Stephen didn't have anything to confess. So then the next step is that they took him to the spot where he would be executed. The second witness would rush up, uh, I'm sorry, first they'd strip him, and then the second witness would rush up and push him so that he fell uh, face down on the ground, and then he would be flipped over, and somebody with a huge boulder, you know these stone walls that we have all over the place? Just imagine one of those stones being held by one of the witnesses, standing over Stephen, looking at him and going, yeah, with all of his might. The intent was to crush the chest bones so that they'd pierce the heart and the lungs. And if he didn't die from that, then everybody came with stones. I mean, not little baseballs, but stones. And piled on until he was dead. That's a pretty gruesome death. And it was into this moment that Luke... Luke gives us a not-so-subtle hint about what God is going to do very soon. Verse 58. And the witnesses, 
laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We know him as Paul. This is fascinating. Remember what I said? Luke's argument was God can save anybody in any nation, anywhere, any way that he wants. He's proving it right here. He's going to use Saul, the persecutor of the church. His persecution days are numbered. But he's going to use the guy that hated the church the most to be the most Ad, the greatest advocate for the church at the very beginning. And he's going to be the one who will open the door to the mission to the Gentiles. God can do whatever he wants, to save whatever, whoever he wants, wherever he wants, and even however he wants. I was reading a, um, a Gospel Coalition article written by a minister uh, in an Islamic nation. Uh, the name of the minister was not... Uh, written down or, or even the nation that he was in, but he had been studying what was going on in the Islamic nation of, of Muslims coming to faith in Christ because you know it's illegal. It's illegal in those nations uh, to proselytize or to share the gospel. So because it's illegal doesn't mean that there aren't Christians there. And he told this fascinating story of about a family, a mom, a dad, and some children, uh, more, you know, not, not toddlers, but a little older than that, and they all had the same dream on the, on the same night. You see, Muslims listen to their dreams. They believe they're from God. We think they're from pizza. They, they don't. So they all had this strange dream, and you have to admit, if we all have the same dream on the same night, that would be something in, interesting. But the dreams, there was a guy all in white who said, cross the river and you'll find eternal water, living water. They got up the next morning. They shared what happened in the dream. They said, okay, well, let's go. There was a river nearby where they lived. They crossed the river. When they got across the river, there was a guy on the other side of the river cooking fish. He was a missionary. It wasn't Jesus. He was a missionary. He had his Bible open. And they came up to the man, and they said, here's our dream. This is what happened. And the man said, oh, living water, let me show you about that. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Read the story to them. They came to faith in Christ. Now, we Americans, we look at that, we go, no, no, it's not possible. God doesn't do stuff like that. Never happened to me. God never would do anything like that. How many of you are willing to say, boy, that's a really odd story, but God gets to do it any way he wants? Amen. Amen. So, where are we at? Let's turn to some application here. We've seen Stephen face a very brutal death. He's calm, he's confident, he's even joyful in some sense. And we have to wonder, how does that happen? I was talking with a friend last night just before the service and we were talking about this scene in the Bible and wondering, you know, could we even do anything like that? I mean, do I, is there anything in me that would lead me to believe that it's possible for me to do something like Stephen does, forgiving his persecutors and the murderers that are in front of him? I had to admit, no, it's, it's not in me. But let's remember, really, the, the theme through this, this sermon is to die well, we must live well. That's the whole point. And so in order to find support from that, I, I find it here in these verses, 55, 59, and 60. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. As I said, I read Spurgeon's uh, sermon on this subject, on this text. Uh, If you don't know Charles Spurgeon, he was a, a pastor very large church. Um, we'd call it a mega church in London in the late, in the, the, the middle to the late 19th century. And it's still a thriving church. Metropolitan Tabernacle is a thriving gospel-centered church today. But his second point in this sermon was so good, I just said, I've got to share this. I can't, I can't, I certainly can't improve it. I've just got to tell people what he said. And these, these are the practical applications that come from this text. Four things, four things that we can do in preparation of our own death so that by our death we glorify God because before our death we live to glorify God. Four things. Number one, seeing Jesus. Number two, praying to Jesus. Number three, entrusting ourselves to Jesus. And number four, imitating Jesus. So Stephen saw Jesus. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, and he saw him. One commentator said it was like Jesus was giving him a standing ovation. Well, I don't know about that, but this is what I do know. I am sure at that very moment that Stephen died, he heard the words we would all want to hear as Christians, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, not many of us are ever going to die with a vision like that. Maybe some will. Maybe some will. In fact, there was a man who told me a story like that about his own mother uh, just after the first service. But I know a woman who, who saw him. Her name was Marge. She was in our church in Colorado. Uh, she, had mar- she and her husband married their, their entire lives, but he was unfaithful to her for their entire marriage. And uh, I asked her one time, you know, how did you, how did you deal with that? What, what did you do? And she said, well, with every heartache, with every disappointment, with every new affair, and with every tear I cried, I just clung tighter to Jesus every day. I said, well, there it is. There it is. That man finally did come to faith in Christ, and I did get the privilege of baptizing him before he died. His wife lived on. Marge lived on for about 10 more years, I think it was. And uh, she got cancer. uh, And eventually she was um, uh, taken uh, to a hospice. Her her daughter and son-in-law um, got her there but she, she knew she was going to die and uh, I went and visited her a few times but then I got a phone call that she had died so I went, I went to the hospice to see her daughter her son-in-law and some other people who were there and uh, the, the daughter pulled me aside and she said I've got to tell you what happened to Marge to my mother uh, before she passed I said yeah please do please tell me what, what happened she said well you know, my mom was in this bed for days. She never opened her eyes. She, her eyes were closed for days. She never, she never responded to anything. And, uh, and then at one moment, she opened her eyes, and she sat up, and she looked up there, and she put out her hands like this, and she said, oh, it's you. Had a big smile on her face, closed her eyes, leaned back, didn't fall back, leaned back, and she was gone with the smile still on her face. Now, I don't know about you, but that's what I'm praying for me. (laughs) 
she saw Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we see Jesus? We do it because we have the Bible. The Word of God is where we see Jesus and can see him every time we open the book. Here's what you do. You pray Psalm 119, verse 18. It says, um, show me wonderful things in your word. Show me wonderful things in your word. Well, what's the most wonderful thing in the Bible? Jesus. It's all about him. So show me Jesus. Show me his glory in the Bible. And then read something. You know how it is. We read along, we read along, we read along, and then something goes, oh, boom, i got to stop here. Um, I, I, I like art museums, but I'm not a really good art museum guy. And several years ago, we went to a museum in London, and there were amazing paintings everywhere. It's a huge museum. And, and we only had a short amount of time, so we had to get through this museum. And so we're going past it. Oh, look at that. That's good. Oh, look at that one. Oh, that, I like that over there. Oh, that's a good one, too. Oh, look at that. Lord Nelson. Great. Oh, King George III. Are you kidding me? Let's move on. Um, and then we came to a room where there was just one painting, and we walked in the room, and it was silent. There were people there, but it was quiet. And they were just staring at this painting admiring it, taking it in. They were lingering before the beauty of this painting in order, in order to just enjoy it. See, that's what we do with the Bible. That's what we do with the Bible. You read it. You don't, don't hurry. You might hurry. Just, you read it, and then all of a sudden, something will stand out for you. And it's like a good meal. You linger over the meal until you get it all in. And that's how we see Jesus. He will give you the joy you want. He, he will give you the challenge you want. He will make the corrections he wants, whatever he wants, because the Spirit of God loves to share the riches of Jesus with Jesus' people. Now, the next thing Peter, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Stephen did was to pray to Jesus. Peter Good grief. Stephen knew where to go in a crisis moment. He had gone there several times before to the throne of grace, and he knew that he would be heard. And that's really what we're doing. You, you, we just got to know where to go. I wonder if your praying is like mine. Here's how I would describe my praying. It's like a bowl of spaghetti. It's all messed up. You know, it's just, there's, there's you know, uh, bad attitudes mixed in, terrible selfish motives, all kinds of inconsistencies. It's just a huge mess. I mean, it's not even got a good meatball in it, right? It's just a mess. But it's, what, it's my mess, and I'm coming to the throne of grace. Now, if your prayers are imperfect like that, don't let that stop you because the Spirit of God is to help us in our weaknesses. That's what it says in Romans 8. Well, my weakness is I got this spaghetti bowl of prayers, which sprinkled on top, by the way, with a little bit of advice about how God ought to straighten things out in my life, which uh, I've never known God to really take my advice, just so you know. So then the Holy Spirit takes this mess, and he straightens it all out. He straightens out spaghetti, 
And then he hands it off to Jesus, who has been interceding for us, because that's, that's his, his role now in, in salvation. His, he's praying for us, and he looks at that, and he goes, oh, that is, that is great. That's a masterpiece. I'm going to give this one to the Father. And he passes it off to the Father, and the Father takes it and says, yes, this is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted to hear. Our messy prayers are no hindrance to God. Listen, if we knew everything that God knows about every situation that we are in, and all of the thousands or maybe millions of contingencies around any particular situation, if we knew all of that, we could pray perfectly according to God's will. But we don't. We don't. We may be lucky to know three things out of a million things going on around us, but God knows them all, and that's how he responds. He responds according to his will through our messy prayers. Now, the next thing that Stephen did was to entrust himself to the Lord. He practiced this when he got up in the morning before his coffee. Lord, I'm putting my trust in you today. Before he went to bed at night, he said, Lord, I'm putting my trust in you as I go to sleep. This was a practice. It has to be a practice of his in order for him to say into your hands, I'm going to commit my spirit. For the Christian, death is not a terror. It's a doorway into Christ's presence. Here's what um, Spurgeon wrote at this point about Stephen. Stephen placed his spirit in the hands of Jesus, and his fear and his care were over. This is the simple and sublime art of dying. With his final breath, Stephen forgave his executioners. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? You know, we cannot wait until our deathbed to forgive other people. The forgiveness for the, the offense of this magnitude against Stephen, the forgiveness of this magnitude, uh, the forgiveness of, for an offense of this magnitude does not come easily. It's a hard, fought-for discipline that comes as the result of the accumulation of forgiving small offenses and big offenses all along the way of our lives. Whether those offenses were intentional or whether they were merely slights that people didn't even think was a problem, there is forgiveness every single time. And do not think you have to wait for someone to ask you to forgive them before you do. You don't. You can forgive immediately without them asking. Did anybody ask Jesus or Stephen to forgive them before they killed them? And yet they forgave. One of my seminary professors who was teaching us to pray through the Psalms, we, we got to some Psalm, I'm, I'm not sure even what it was, but he, he, he said, listen, gentlemen, we Christians need to be quicker forgivers Oh, and I love that phrase. It's just automatic. If you offend me, even if you mean it or you don't mean it, you're going to get, I forgive you. You're not going to get, no worries. No, 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 no. Use the Bible language. I forgive you. I forgive you. You're released. Like I said, this kind of forgiveness against something as evil as Stephen's murder uh, didn't come at the last minute. It came because he practiced forgiving 
others. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I quoted R.C. Sproul's thoughts about dying. Now I want to conclude with a, a thought about his about death. Here's what he said. When we close our eyes in death, we do not cease to be alive. Rather, we experience a continuation of personal consciousness. No person is more conscious or more aware, more alert than when he passes through the veil from this world into the next. Far from falling asleep, he is awakened to the glory and all of its significance. For the believer, death doesn't have the last word. Death has surrendered to the conquering power of the one who was resurrected as the firstborn of many brethren. So, to die well, we must live well. Now, we started by talking about our death, you know, the moments before our death. But I think now we should ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we ready? Or what do we need to do to become ready to live a life that glorifies God so that even in our death, there is glory for his name? So I'm going to close in prayer here. And perhaps one of those four elements, seeing Jesus, praying to Jesus, and trusting yourself to Jesus, and imitating Jesus, one of those four things may have stuck out to you as something you said, yeah, I, I've got to practice that more. Well, as I pray, you pray that. And ask God to help you to practice that more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have ordained the number of our days before there was any one of them, even before creation began. Every one of them was written in your book, and each one of them has been a gift. And we know that we have a race to run in this life, and we ask you to help us to finish that race. And, and when we come into our own personal valley of the shadow of death, we know that you will meet us there, the shepherd of our souls, who has conquered death by your own death. You will comfort and guide with the words that we want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then, as your dearly loved child, you will usher us into the indescribable and glorious joy of the presence of God. Until then, O oh Lord, we ask that in the days and years that lie ahead that you would grant us the eyes of faith to see Jesus and be transformed into his image. We ask you for more sweet times in prayer and the determination that each day we'll commit ourselves to your will. Most of all, we ask that you will train us to be quicker forgivers for every slight, every offense, even every evil that might come our way so that we might not carry grudges and regrets with us through life or even to our deathbed because that would rob you of your glory. It's by your pleasure that we are still alive at this time, that we have awakened to uh, love and family and hope and prayer and, and the next thing that you want us to do so long as we have the strength that allows. And though our bodies will decline and new pains will come and new limitations too, we know this. We are still your servants, still your children. We are still vessels of your spirit. 
and we are conduits of your grace. Thank you for helping us to number our days and gain wisdom from it this morning through Stephen's life and death. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.